Let's dip into the text then. So let's please return to Revelation 21 and 22. And uh, first of all, a few introductory comments, and then we'll just dip into the content of it. Uh, first introductory comment, that the book of Revelation depicts a future. There is a future and it matters. So I'll just say that because that's so important. There is a future and it matters. The Christian life cannot be lived on the basis of the present. The Christian life does not make sense just in terms of the present. Uh, we, uh, we heard a speaker on Wednesday from Australia, from a beautiful part of Australia where the sun always shines, the, the, the sea is always blue, and he said he had problems persuading the people around him that heaven could be any better. Now that is a problem because we are not meant to fix our hopes and our affections and our joy in this world. Now, there are delightful things, there are joyful things, there are things we can genuinely look forward to, but they cannot be the thing that propels us through the Christian life. The, thing that, the only thing that is adequate to make us the people of God is by looking at the future which the book of Revelation depicts. That's what we have to have deep in our hearts as the reason for living the Christian life. Now, I say that, it, 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 to some of us it might be very obvious, but it needs saying, because the Christian life can be presented in terms of you have wonderful fellowship with people of your own age, you sing wonderful songs, what could be better than that? Well, the answer is, heaven is better than that. The world to come is better than that. And that's jolly well what we'd be better to be aiming for because sometimes the songs are going to be out of tune. One day the people of your own age will be in their 80s and 90s and um, you still need to be living the Christian life looking forward with gladness and confidence and a robust hope. So there is a future and it matters. Those promises that we looked at in the beginning of Revelation in, you know, remember chapter 2 and 3 each of the seven churches had a little snippet of a promise if you combine them all together they make up the whole thing to him who overcomes I will give the right to eat from the tree of life and where is that tree? it's in the paradise of God that's what we've been reading about to him who overcomes says the spirit he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's the judgment to come. These are all promises for the future. Almost entirely, not, all, not completely, almost, completely all, but almost entirely. Second uh, introductory remark. The future is accessed via moral, ethical retribution and grace. So if there, I'll explain what I mean. In chapter 21 is the heavenly city, 
and you get to that via chapter 20. And what happened in chapter 20? Well, what you had in chapter 20 was the day of judgment. And you don't get to the world to come except via the day of judgment. And what is this day of judgment? It's a day with moral categories to it, good and evil. It's a, a, a day with ethical character, uh, characteristics. What has been right and what has been wrong? That matters. That's what is assessed on that day. It's a day of morality and ethics, and it's a day of retribution. <clears throat> I, I had a quite a long conversation with somebody at a conference about retribution, and I only realized sort of towards the end of it that he thought retribution meant revenge, uh, and therefore was a nasty thing. Um, revenge getting your own back is not really the same thing or gives you the wrong impression than retribution. Retribution is to pay what is owed, to settle accounts. The things that are owed get paid, uh, a fair repayment. And the day of judgment works by, it's not the only thing it works by, but it, it works by fairness. So people who have raped and murdered and abused and cheated and oppressed will get what they deserve. They won't get worse than they deserve, but they won't get less than they deserve. All the things that they have done and perhaps thought, this is of no consequence. I can oppress people. I can extract money from them. I can have all the wealth and power. And there's no downside to it at all. On that day, the Lord will give people as they deserve. It's a day of paying back. And that's what I mean by retribution. If that's not what you understand by it, then filter it out and put in the correct understanding. A day of complete fairness. And it is also a day of grace. Because for those who have believed in Jesus Christ, their sins will be found to have already been paid for by Jesus Christ. That's fair, because no sin goes unpunished, but the sins of believers have already been punished. Jesus Christ bore that. That's what he was doing when he said on that day, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The day when the sun refused to, sh to shine, that's the day when the sins of believers were paid for. And it's all wrapped up in the grace of God, whereby he planned and purposed to have these people with him on that day, that Jesus Christ should die for their sins, and their names are known to God, and their names are written in a book, the book of life. And in chapter 20, you see, uh, let me just see what the references were, verse 12 books opened. Now those are books that record the, the deeds that people have done. And there's another book, this book of the Lamb's Book of Life, the names of those whom God has purposed forever to show grace to. And on that last day, that, uh, that grace will be shown. So the future is accessed via 
the realities and the categories and the demands of this great day of judgment. Third comment about the future. Uh, we're told constantly through the book of Revelation that the future is coming. Uh, difficult to translate the, 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 the Greek word. Uh, um, it's uh, entakis, from which we get tachometer, which means a speed measuring machine. Uh, uh, it means speedily. Uh, Jesus says um, in verse chap 22, verse 7, I am coming. Now, I haven't done the homework on this. I, I presume it's entakis or taki. I am coming speedily. I am coming soon. I am coming suddenly. So you could, there's a range of, of possible meanings of that, but it, it, it's all to do with velocity. It's all to do with speed. And uh, although to us, well, I don't know, does the, do you think the future comes along slowly or quickly? I think, I think time travels faster than you, you think it's going to, doesn't it? Things come around very quickly. Uh, and Jesus adds this assurance that he will bring the future quickly, soon. Behold, I am coming soon. So you've got the definiteness. There is a day uh, and the rapidity. Well, he says it's coming rapidly, suddenly perhaps, quickly. Uh, it's taken 2,000 years so far to come quickly, but he still says, I'm coming quickly. Uh, so there is, yeah, that was point number three. And point number four, the future contains, well, it contains glory and fulfillment as well as torment, wrath, defeat, and uh, disposal as, on, as in rubbish disposal. Uh, that's quite a combination of things. Uh, chapter 19, verse 20, the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And it says the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Well, I'm not sure I can say very much about this fiery lake of burning sulfur. It sounds awful, uh, and that's what it's meant to sound like. It's meant to sound final. Uh, you know, there's no coming out of that lake. Uh, so I, I've put it as, a, as disposal. Uh, evil is done away with, never to pop back, never to return. And I'm also thinking of chapter 20, verse 10, where it says... The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I would like to hide this verse away, but I'm not going to hide this verse because that's what it says. It says there will be for some people, uh, the, the devil, the beast, the false prophet are mentioned here, uh, for some personal beings, there will be everlasting torment. Uh, there will be wrath. And uh, the other, another metaphor is this of defeat, isn't it? The, the armies that try to overcome uh, the Lord and his Christ are utterly and completely defeated. 
So this is an awful and awesome day because it, it contains the downfall and the final destruction and the ultimate defeat of everything that has been evil, everything that has been against God, everything that has neglected God, ignored God, twisted God's ways, etc. So it's got that in it, as well as the glory and the fulfillment. It's the glory and the fulfillment that I wanted to, uh, to pause on, but it has to be said, there's, there are unspeakably awful things that come from that day. And I want to ask you to make it your business to make sure that that isn't you. Because hell, which is what's described here, here's another word for it, if you call it hell, that lake, it's not empty. Some forms of Christianity teach that hell is empty that everybody somehow will be saved and it'll be wonderful for everybody. Real Christianity doesn't teach that. Real Christianity teaches that there is a crisis, a division in the human race, that on that great day the, the king will sit dividing the sheep from the goats and saying, come you blessed of my father to some and depart from me to others. Hell will not be empty, and the choices that we make, that you are making, determine that. Do you want to pay for your own sins on that day, or will you turn to Jesus Christ and so pray to him, and so speak to him, and so engage with him, that you can be sure that you have heard him say, I've taken your sins for you. That's, the, that, that's coming to Jesus Christ in repentance, turning from everything else to him, and coming believing his promises. And it is absolutely vital that that's the sort of Christianity you have. Real, personal engagement with Jesus Christ for heaven and hell, for life and death, that's how important it is and this day shows that to us. So let's look now at the future for the believer. And the future is depicted in a number of overlapping uh, pictures. So in 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea not because God doesn't like beaches but I think sea in the Bible is the place from which evil arises you know the churning of the sea and the beasts come out of the sea I think that's the symbolism of it and I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband so the future is a city which is a bride. Uh, it's a, a, a strange combination, isn't it? Well, I'm just going to outline these things first and then come back to them in a moment. So there's the city, and well, uh, there's the bride, one beautiful picture. Uh, and it's also 
a tree and a river. If you go to chapter 22, uh, the angel showed me, because a lot of chapter 21 is about the city, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. There's a river. And on either side of the river stood the tree of life. Well, we thought there was one tree of life, but this tree manages to be on both sides of this river, and it bears fruit. It's a tree and a river. Uh, and there's a tree and a river. But there is not a temple. Do you notice it said there was no temple? So we'll look at that, and I'll draw, I'll draw no temple. That's the, there, I've drawn it. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's look first of all at the, the, the bride and the city. So it really is just dipping in on this. Uh, the bride. She's dressed as a bride, uh, beautifully dressed for her husband, verse 2. And in verse uh, chapter 21, verse 9, Come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And I think there's not a great deal more said enlarging on that thought, but let's take that thought because everybody understands a bride. It's part of human understanding. It, it, I was pondering, there are a number of things in human life which, are, which almost link directly to heavenly things. So marriage is one of them, because the idea of marriage is of Christ and his church. That's where it comes from. And uh, football matches are another. When you have a huge community of people all shouting great, worthy is the one who scored the goal that's like it is in heaven you're experiencing a little bit of heaven like that and music is another because only human being, only, I think only human beings sing, it's something uh, transcendent, it puts us in, in touch with the, the whiff of heaven uh, and a bride is part of that everybody knows what a, a bride is everybody knows what a wedding is Everybody has some, some sense of the wonder of it, the idea of a personal relationship, because this is what a wedding is about, isn't it? It's about two people who love one another and have longed to be together, and that great day is celebrated uh, in, the, in the wedding. So, as I put there, it's, it's something personal. It's to do with relationship, isn't it? Person-to-person -person relationship. It's to do with love. It's to do with beauty because every bride looks beautiful and she's dressed to be adorned as beautiful and it says that here, doesn't it? A bride, uh, can't find it, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I've been at one or two weddings where at the moment where the bride enters in, so it's the way we do it in, in English weddings anyway, the, so the, the bridegroom is already there and the bride enters and this poor chap, has, his knees have been knocking ever since, well, ever since, and, uh, and then he's, so he's more or less done for already and then he looks around and sees this wonderful uh, person coming towards him and uh, nearly keels over, I, I'm just trying to think, I think Jamie was a bit like that when he got married, and I think Tom Robson was when, when he got married, actually. Uh, so here's, the, here's something that everybody understands, and the Bible says that's what it will be like on that great day. 
uh, and the bride will be us and Jesus is the great heavenly bridegroom it's the the wife of the lamb uh, and it's a day well it's full of wonder we can't imagine ourselves looking beautiful and wonderful and yet Christ does that Christ is changing us now he died to to cleanse us and make us a beautiful bride for him and one day all of that longing will be uh, will be consummated and we will see him we will be presented to him we won't be living apart in the sense that we do now we'll be together forever so we have that picture of what the future holds it's a fantastic picture isn't it do you agree with me I think it's a wonderful picture the uh, uh, here is the bride the church us prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband that's what the end of the world is like and the the second sort of half of that that is described is of a city and I notice that the two are put back to back book of Revelation loves to do that the lion there's also a lamb uh, the 144,000, a very precise number, is the same as that multitude that no one can number. Uh, and here, the, the bride, the singular bride, is also the holy city. And of course, city enlarges on the, the, uh, the depiction. Uh, what is a city? What is this new, this holy city, this new Jerusalem? Well, a city is a community. It's not an individual. It's humanity grouped together. That's what a city is. Uh, it's a community. And a, and a city has a characteristic made up of all the individual characters put together and working together. I suppose you get the same thing a little bit in, in the way that different churches have different characteristics. You get a different combination of personalities, uh, different aspects um, but one, one church one community so here's the city it's a community it's a place of business so we should not think that the world to come is only and exclusively uh, singing uh, and we should not think that the world to come is wafting around in a disembodied state either a community is a place where real people do stuff it's uh, a place of business and it has this the combined force uh, and uh, combined personality and the multiplicity meaning many many people together uh, and that is what is described in of the city let's uh, look at uh, the description of it in verse 9 and I am just dipping into this uh, so come I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God it shone with the glory of God its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel like a jasper clear as crystal so he's going to describe 
the brilliance of it in terms of semi-precious stones, what we call semi-precious stones, wonderful colours and beauty. Uh, and uh, as you know, different places have different characteristic building materials. So if you go to the Isle of Wight, there's a lot of brick that's made out of sort of green clay brick. Gives a characteristic. Uh, anybody know the characteristic uh, or the famous building material in Lewis? Mathematical tiles. Mathematical tiles uh, look like bricks, but if you look at the edge of them, they're only that thin, and they are actually tiles that have been hung like that to look like bricks. So Timber-framed house, and you, that's, that's very Lewis, very, very Lewis. Have a look when you're next there. Um, the Brighton building material, characteristically? Sorry? Bungaroosh. Bungaroosh, which is made of all loads of old rubbish, put together with uh, with more uh, with um, uh, uh, yeah with lime and, and a, a, more, uh, a render on the outside, which is the only thing that holds it together. Uh, you, you can recognise it a mile off. The the place where you're doing the building has characteristic building materials, and the characteristic building materials of heaven are heavenly materials. We'll have. Uh, a pearl for this and uh, we'll lay down gold for that and this will be made out of pure glass just notice all these heavenly building materials last time we might have seen those was on the breastplate of the high priest because he is clothed in a heavenly way when you look at him you think oh he must have been in touch with heaven. Look at his clothes. And, and he smells of heaven as well because he had a particular scent that he was to carry around with him. So these semi-precious stones were on his, on his front. And here they are uh, in, the, in the building of this city. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. So what is uh, 12 is a special number. It's not seven, it's not 13 or 14, it's 12. Why 12? 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Uh, Jesus, we presume, called 12 apostles on the back of the fact that originally Israel was 12 tribes. It's sort of describing the community of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. There's a lot of 12s here in this city. It's a very community place. Uh, on the gates were written, this is verse 12, strangely enough, the, were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates in the east, three gates in the north, three in the south, three in the west, making a total of 12. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Well, I don't know how to draw the foundations, but there's lots of 12s. It, it, it's... It's built for this complete community, Old and New Testament, the people of God. And the angel who talked with me, verse 15, had a measuring rod of gold. Well, that's what you would use, isn't it? You wouldn't dream of taking something made out of aluminium uh, to, to measure this city, a measuring rod of gold to measure its city, its gates, its walls. He's not doing architecture. He, it's not, he's doing theology. He's, it, it, this is 
a visual way of teaching us spiritual truth. So he measures it. He's saying, what can we find out about this? Well, it's laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with its rod and it's vast. So according to the footnote, about 1,400 miles in length and width and height. So it's cubic, cubical. No, it can't be cubical. That's not right. It's cubic. It is a cube. And any idea where the idea of a place that's a cube might come from? Steve knows because he told me. Go on. Yeah. In in the construction of the of the temple, the Old Testament temple, that the the space where God was was cubic. So it's not a Borg cube, it's a holy cube. Where were we? The, so we, it's a wall which is 144 cubits thick, which is 12 by 12, by man's measurement. Interesting that, that something so heavenly is also so human, because there is this, uh, this, uh, this wonderful um, combining together of holiness heavenliness and humanness. It's a place for human beings. And then there's the description of the wall made of jasper, the city of gold. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone and they're listed jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, and so on and so on and so on. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The streets of the city were of pure gold, like translucent glass. So I, I simply take from that, he's trying to say to us, it is a beautiful, radiant, um, amazing place. You've never seen anything like this. But this is where you'll be, and you'll be part of it, because it's all 12-ish. It's all for people. Uh, and and this, is what he's, this is what he's telling us. Right, so it's a, a bride and it's a city. Let's jump over a little bit and think that it's uh, the future depicted as a river and a tree. 22, chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Does anybody know where the idea of a, a, a river that flows from the throne comes from? It, it's, it's ringing a number of bells from the Old Testament. Ezekiel, there's Ezekiel where the, uh, there's a, he's shown a temple and a river and he measures it and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and it turns the salt water fresh as it goes along. So that's a vision that he's, he's picking up on. Any other rivers? Which one were you thinking of? Uh, yeah, there were, there were rivers that flowed out of Eden, weren't there? Yeah, which presumably meant he was on a hill if the rivers flowed out of it. Yeah, thank you. And there's a psalm, isn't there, which says there is a, a str uh, the river, the streams of which make glad the city of God. And the idea of a, a river, you know, so important, isn't it, to have a stream of water, particularly if you're a Middle Eastern reader of this. What could be more precious than water? And uh, we have Jesus telling us, uh, all you who are thirsty, come to me and drink. 
drink, the, uh, drink those who believe in me, for out of, uh, out of his middle, out of his belly, will flow streams of living water. The idea of, uh, of this fullness of spiritual life flowing. And I can't help but remember that when Jesus died on the cross, his side was pierced, and from his side there flowed water and blood. And I would like to suggest, and it's only a suggestion, that the, the healing river flows from the wounded side of Jesus Christ. It says here it flows from the throne. I'm not, I don't think that's a contradiction, but I think the, the thought uh, of his wounded side is very suggestive. Uh, so there's water flowing in this world and it, it supplies the tree of life now where does the tree of life originally come from yeah it's in the in the garden of eden isn't it it's the it's the tree the eating of which gives you eternal life or sustains eternal life and that was sort of the last we saw of it in eden we weren't allowed to go there and God took measures to, to mean that there was a barrier that could not be crossed. But here he says, here's the tree. It's there. Actually, there's, is it 12 of it? Well, it's on either side of the, of the river, and it bears 12 crops of fruit. So I read, misread that as 12 versions of the tree, but it doesn't say that, does it? It's about 12 crops of fruit. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations which is a wonderful thing, isn't it? The nations, down through the Bible, the nations always get the wrong end of the stick. The nations are always hammering on against the Lord and his anointed. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. And the, the, the nations are constantly depicted as, as shaking their fists in the face of God. But God will win the nations and he provides for all this dysfunctionality and all this um, this mess up to be healed. Uh, there is uh, healing. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Uh, in the time of the civil rights movement in America, there was a song by Pete Seeger, which is a sort of secularized version of this, but you can get the, the longing of it. Oh, healing river, send down your water, send down your water upon this land. O healing river, send down your water and wash the blood from off the sand. That's what the Pete Seeger song. He was thinking of that in the middle of all the civil rights unrest and, and all of that. Healing river, come and sort out our nation. Well, he wasn't talking about it in a Christian way, but here is the Christian way. The leaves of the tree is for the healing of the nations. And it says, there will be no more curse. So that's exactly what we need, isn't it? Back in Genesis, when our first father sinned, he brought misery on the rest of us and creation took the hit with him. Uh, it was, there was a curse. And here at last, creation has the curse removed and creation has been groaning and longing in expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And here and now, the nations are healed and the curse is removed from creation. 
It's a wonderful prospect, isn't it? And I think the way we access it is really by imagination. Uh, and I, I've said this before, and I, I, I still, look, still think it's right, that C.S. Lewis has done great things for us in giving us an imaginative way of thinking about the world to come. I know C.S. Lewis isn't to everybody's taste, but uh, if, you can, uh, if you can manage it, sort of set a you know, 1930s style of England, isn't it? But um, great imagination as to what it would be like to be in a world where there's no sin, in, in a world where everything is, uh, is new. Anyway, let's move on to the No More Temple. Right, looks as though I've clicked the wrong button at the wrong time, so bear with me on this. Uh, verse, chapter 21, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Let's just touch on that thought. So this is the button I meant to press. There's the world with trees and houses and a person taking a dog for a walk. I did the dog quite quickly, but it, you could imagine it's being a dog. It's quite, yes, it's all right. Um, so there's the world as it is. There's our world. And there is the presence of God. God spans the entire world, does he not? Uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. However, the way, uh, certainly in the Old Testament, certainly the idea of temple is that if you want to meet God, you have to go to a special place, and at the temple, there is the presence of God. Please notice, so you have a big wide world, and God is as big as the world, and yet only in part of the world can you meet God, because you go to Jerusalem, or you point yourself towards Jerusalem and there is the presence of God and it has, you know, it says God dwells here uh, this is the holy place this is the most holy place that's where God is that's how it is in our world in the world to come you have please imagine a new creation so there are new trees and there's a new house and there's a new dog and a person doing the, the things that human beings do interacting with creation in a resurrection world I don't know whether there are resurrection dogs but there is a resurrection ecosystem a new heaven and a new earth and so this is a bit where I click it and, it and it puts the God bit over there you don't need a temple because there is no bit of the world where you have to go to to find the presence of God specially because the whole world is the place to meet God and I invite you to think of a creation like that where God is fully actively wonderfully present at every point I mean use your imagination in our world uh, you can um, trip over things and stub your toe in the world to come, here's a suggestion, is the world to come so filled with the presence of God that the, the rules that it operates by do not allow you to stub your toe because in this new world there's no pain. There's no death, there's no mourning, there's no crying. The, the, 
we can hardly imagine it, can we? But a world absolutely packed with the presence of God, it doesn't need a temple because the Lamb and the Lord are the temple in that world. So we're just dipping into this, as you can see, and I'm missing lots of stuff out and not dealing adequately with lots of other stuff. Here is, no. Here are some of the promises in these wonderful chapters. So let's just taste the, those. It's a brilliant promise, isn't it? There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order is gone and all is made new. I suppose that's like many promises. It may have more or less resonance depending on what you're going through. But you could imagine somebody perhaps feeling very much the pain and the sadness of this world and God saying you won't feel that in the world to come there won't be tears there won't be sorrow there won't be regrets it's all wiped away the old things are gone and God says it's all new And then we have this promise which is uh, tucked away in there, uh, 22 verse 4. They will see his face. Well, that's one thing we've never ever done, is it? We've never seen his face. There's a, there's a sort of iconic representation of Jesus. Everybody would recognize this is what it's supposed to look like. <coughs> Excuse me. But we've never seen his face. And according to this promise, we will see his face. Uh, I, uh, I can remember a bit of the bit at the end of, of, uh, uh, of Pilgrim's Progress. Should have brought it along with me, where he says, um, the Pilgrim, as he's about to enter the heavenly city, says uh, something like, uh, I, have, I have heard of him and uh, the thought of meeting him has been like a burning coal in my heart but now I shall see him of whom I have only heard previously they will see his face I remember uh, going to pray with Neil whose last name I've forgotten Neil and Jane Durrant he had liver cancer and I remember going and reading that bit with him uh, and uh, I didn't see him again in this world and he said Cool, that sounds quite exciting, doesn't it? Uh, and it is. And here's another verse which says, and I didn't put the reference, they will reign with him. It's 22 verse 5. They will reign forever and ever. Not need the light of the lamp, or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. I think it's saying about us, isn't it? That we will share his throne and I think that they is us. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? So, time has gone. We've touched on these wonderful things and we have prayed that we wouldn't just forget them but that they would be part of our thinking, part of our motivation.
part of what keeps us going and leads us on.